Welcome to Rainbow Puppy Science Lab. It's the world's only lab dedicated exclusively to the study of all things awesome. Every episode, we'll explore a different subject and figure out what makes it great. So goggles on, awesomeologists. This might get messy. But we're about to discover something, something awesome. awesome. Hi, and welcome to Rainbow Puppy Science Lab. I'm Atticus. And I'm Kyle. We may be on summer break, but as a teacher, I know kids always love a test. Um, that's not true. Well, I'm going to leave it to our listeners to see if they can tell what's true and what's fiction. It's time for another round of fact or fake. We'll share two interesting bits of trivia. Your challenge is to figure out which one is an absolutely amazing true fact and what is just totally made up. First, the world's record for the longest game of Monopoly ever played lasted 72 hours. That's three whole days. Or... Chess started as a war strategy game in India about... 1800 years ago, the game focused on movement of four divisions of the military, infantry, cavalry, elephantry, and chariotry. So there you have it, two totally cool bits of trivia. One of them is an absolutely amazing, totally true fact, but the other is just incredible, meaning it's not credible because it's totally fake. If you need a moment to think about it, that's okay. Which do you think is fake? What details makes that one seem a little sus? Pause the show if you need to. We'll be right here when you get back. Now, the moment of truth has arrived. As a matter of fact, the true story is... Drumroll, please. Um, Dad, that's dice, not a drum. Now, the true story was that chess originated in eastern India around the years 280 to 550 CE. As the game spread from India to Persia, through the Muslim world, then Europe, the game evolved. Just as we may make house rules for favorite games, different cultures put their own spin on the pieces. The infantry became pawns, cavalry became a knight, Elephants became bishops, and chariots turned into rooks. Today, chess is enjoyed by players all over the world, as 70% of adults have played chess in their lives, and over 600 million adults regularly play the game. If you thought the longest game Monopoly ever lasted 72 hours, you weren't too far off. It actually lasted 70 days. That's right. Although a lot of the details of who, how, and why have been lost to history, according to Hasbro, the makers of Monopoly, the longest, most epic game ever played lasted for 70 days. Some other interesting marathon games of Monopoly have been played over the years, including a 99-hour game, the longest played in a bathtub, a 100-hour game, the longest played underground for some reason, and a 240-hour game, setting the record for the longest played in a treehouse. 
not gonna lie, that sounds pretty awesome. Although I really hope they got out of the treehouse for some bathroom breaks now and then. <laughs> <laughs> now, to really understand what makes board games so awesome, let's go back and look at how board games have changed history. Sounds to me like it's time to break out Rainbow Puppy Science Lab's super advanced future technology, the Wayback Machine. Um, Dad? How could a board game land us in jail? Jail isn't fun. What kind of game puts stuff like that on the board? Actually, in Monopoly, there are multiple ways to go to jail. You might end up there by landing on the go-to-jail space, by drawing a card that sends you to jail, or by rolling doubles three times in a row. Because there are so many ways to land in jail. Jail is actually the most landed on space on the board. Ugh, no wonder everyone hates Monopoly. First off, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, Monopoly set the record for the most popular game played by hundreds of millions of people. There are about 1,500 different variations, and in 1998, it was included in the National Toy Hall of Fame. Part of the appeal is that it allows people to play with things from the real world, like money, rent, and even jail, without suffering real-life consequences. Oddly enough, unlike the real world, being in jail can actually be a good strategy. Later in the game, after most of the properties have been bought, a player in jail can sit in jail, collecting rent, without risking landing on someone else's property and having to pay rent. And that may work in the game, but just to be clear, in the real world, we should make good choices and live our lives following the rules to avoid jail or prison. Here's a little fun fact for you. Did you know in World War II, the Monopoly game actually helped British soldiers get out of prisoner of war camps? Picture this. World War II has been going for years, and the British airmen have been shot down and captured behind enemy lines. They are stuck in a German prisoner of war camp. Okay, I know you said waiting things out in jail can be a good strategy in Monopoly, but this definitely sounds like it would be a terrible time to wait things out in prison. Please tell me they did not take their cues from the game strategies. Not exactly. But Monopoly was a big part of their escape plan. The Geneva Conventions sort of all the rules that all countries agreed to follow, even during war, said that aid organizations must be, it must be able to give care packages to prisoners. The British Intelligence Service, MI9, came up with a bold plan to use care packages to help their soldiers escape the camps. They created a fake charity to put together special care packages. They went to John Waddington, the British manufacturer of Monopoly, and asked him to create a custom version of the game. Oh, because there were so many versions of Monopoly, they could do a prison break edition. That's right. They disguised compasses and files as game pieces. They also put real money under the Monopoly money. It looks like an innocent game to pass the time, 
But it was the perfect escape kit. The real reason they went to Waddington was for the maps. They needed to send maps that could be quickly crumpled up to hide in a boot or shoved into a pocket without making any noise. It needed to be a tough material that wouldn't rip too easily or disintegrate if it got too wet. So what did they use? Silk. In addition to making Monopoly games for the UK, Waddington had silk printing technology for things like theater programs. They were the only manufacturer equipped to print the maps on silk and hide them within the game board itself. They marked their special edition escape kit versions of Monopoly with a red dot on the free parking space. To someone unfamiliar with the game, it may look normal enough, but the captured soldiers recognized there was something different about those games and looked critically at everything else in the box to figure out how it might help them secure freedom. It is estimated that those Monopoly care packages helped thousands of soldiers escape from German POW camps. Wow, it's like a next-level get-out-of-jail-free card. That's right, but up next, my dad is going to share his report on some current developments in board games. Oh, was that due today? Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm thinking I'm going to need a little extension. See, I had the report done, I swear. But then my uh, computer crashed and my dog ate the computer. And believe it or not, as I was taking the dog to the vet, walking 10 miles uphill in the snow, my nemesis, Dr. Meanie Bad Guy, drove by and kidnapped the dog. While he was out walking the dog, she passed the computer, but Dr. Meanie Bad Guy threw it away with the other waist. Luckily, while he was distracted with the cleanup, I was able to recover the dog, but I was not able to recover the report. That has got to be the worst excuse I've ever heard. I know, that Dr. Meanie bad guy is the worst. So, how much time can you give me? We're all going to want to hear your report right after this short break. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, Awesomeologists. You know, one of the things I love about board games is the fact that anyone can make changes to them, or even make their own. 
We talked about how chess started as a military strategy game in India hundreds of years ago, with totally different pieces representing elephants and chariots, but over time people made changes to suit their tastes and reflect their culture and their times. Monopoly went through a similar transformation. It may not have ancient roots like chess, but Monopoly started off as the landlord's game when it was created by Lizzie Maggie in 1903. She actually created the game as an educational tool to explain her ideas about how an economy should function. She created two ways to play. One that would reward everyone as wealth was created, sort of a cooperative game and one where the goal was to create monopolies and crush the opponents. It was intended to show how minor advantages can snowball, creating massive inequalities, and apparently that was the version that Charles Darrow loved when he played it with his friends at a dinner party one night in 1932. He played the game with friends, asked them to write down the rules, and then, in a move that seems totally fitting for the brutal nature of Monopoly, he sold the game to Parker Brothers. Of course, Parker Brothers did the right thing, and when they realized that the game they bought was copied from someone else's game, they paid for Lizzie Maggie's patent. I think the key takeaway that I want to focus on here, though, is that one of the most popular board games in the history of the world was more or less developed by ordinary people sharing their ideas with friends. The key to developing a good game is thinking about what elements you enjoy in other games. One of my current favorites is Junior Detectives from Buffalo Games. It combines two things I absolutely love a good mystery, and simple magic tricks. The game comes with dozens of delightful case files and witness cards that can be remixed for each mystery, but also clever tricks to make sure you don't accidentally, or deliberately, sneak a peek at those witness statements. Some cards require a color filter to read, others have to be read in a mirror. There's even a card with a secret message using disappearing ink. Junior Detective is a fun game that I've enjoyed playing with my kids, but did you know that games are not just for kids to enjoy? Games can also be created by kids. During the pandemic lockdown, an eight-year-old named Cora Hughes worked with her dad to develop a game that would be fun for the whole family. Cora Quest is a fun fantasy game with different quests to get coins or save a gnome. It's a cooperative game, so instead of trying to beat the other players, everybody's working together to succeed in the adventure. I personally love the positivity of a cooperative game and games that have a good story. And Cora Hughes embedded all sorts of delightful fantasy elements and really eye-catching artwork into Cora Quest. Reading about that reminded me of one of my favorite remote learning lessons from that pandemic era. I had my students develop their own board games. If you want to see my tips for developing your own game, I'll link a video in the show notes and of course at www.rainbowpuppysciencelab.com. So now, let's review. What makes board games so cool? What are some of the elements we could add to our periodic table of awesome? I think it's so cool that they're based in the real world. 
and not just staring mindlessly at a screen. You know, actually, I would really agree. And it's not just because I'm trying to get you to stare at the screen a little bit less. It's because when you're working in the real world, you can actually manipulate things and make changes to it. Like, I can't go in and reprogram a video game, but we can come up with our own house rules to Monopoly, or we can come up with our own house rules to Junior Detective or Scrabble or really any game. Yeah, and do you know what's even better than house rules? I can really come up with my own game entirely. Rather, it's like an obstacle course in the backyard or an actual board game. That's right. It's what we call a low barrier for entry. It's really accessible to anybody in any time, in any place. As long as you have an imagination, you can create your own variations or your own whole new games. And I think that is really awesome. Yeah, I think so too. Now let's look into the future. How? By combining the sciences of magic and superstition. That's not science. We created this crystal ball that is guaranteed to tell the future at least as accurately as tea leaves. Uh, I, I know I left it here somewhere. Uh, Dad, that's a deck of cards. Tarot cards? No, Uno cards. That can't be right. There's clearly more than one. Ah, uh, whatever. I'm sure it'll work just as well. Now, what do we see for the future of board games? I think board games will engage all the senses, not just touch and sight. Maybe, for example, you could hear the footsteps of a character walking instead of just the when you move it up and down. Okay, so it's almost like a little sound effect machine or something like that, like pre-recorded stuff that just sets the tone of the story as you're playing the game? Yeah, or like, or if it's like based in a city, maybe if once in a while there are disasters where things like maybe an earthquake will happen and some of the tall buildings that are um, projected onto the board will fall, will seem to fall. Okay, so you're imagining like holographic stuff that gets into like three dimensions and changes over time? Yes. See, I think that would be cool, but I actually think still, like you said before, one of the cool things about board games is that they're so low tech. I think a lot of the best games are working off people's imaginations and they're physically manipulated. I am old enough to still really enjoy and appreciate physical objects. I think what's gonna come next is something we're already seeing from some game developers where they're making pieces that are almost modular where you can like remix the board game like you know how in junior detective i keep coming back to junior detective because i absolutely love that board game yeah. but you know how you can keep changing out the cards and rearranging the cards for different mysteries and stuff like yes. that 
Well, like, imagine if you had a board game that came in pieces. So you could say, like, you know what? I only have 10 minutes to play a game right now. So I'm only going to put out three of these pieces and have a short board. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? I want to spend all evening with my friends playing this game. And we're going to put out all of these pieces and have a winding path and an epic adventure as we play this game. Like, I could imagine a board game that is designed where you can swap out different pieces on the board to make it easier or harder for different age groups and customize different elements and make that game a little bit your own. So you're not just a game player. It's a game kit where you're the game developer. Oh, yeah, that would be really cool because it could also help you if you like choose your career in life to think of new ideas it could help you like it could give you some practice thinking up new ideas for that game yes but now i think it's time we wrap up this episode with a little more reliable prognostication that means telling the future That's right. Let's give everyone a little preview of next week's episode with another round of fact or fake. Here's our first story. In May of 1961, NASA sent Alan, a German shepherd, up into space. It was NASA's first experience sending a living creature into orbit. So Alan the German Shepherd was the first American in space. It's kind of messed up, right? The first American in space was a German. (laughs) Fair enough. Or, most people know dogs can be trained to help the blind. But did you know dogs can help people in tons of other ways? Some service dogs are trained to sense when their owner may have a seizure and help keep them safe. Dogs can also use their superior sense of smell to detect changes in blood sugar levels for people with diabetes. And in some schools, these ever-patient and lovable creatures are used as reading buddies. No wonder dogs are considered a person's best friend. So there you have it. Which do you think is true? Tune in to Rainbow Puppy Science Lab next week to find out. Thanks for listening to our show. Rainbow Puppy Science Lab is an airwave media podcast. It was written, produced, mixed, and edited by us, Atticus and Kyle. Background music and sound effects came courtesy of Pixabay. Today, we covered something that we love and wanted to learn more about, but what are you curious about? Ask your grown-up to head over to rainbowpuppysciencelab.com to find some fun experiments and activities you can try. While you're there, tell us what you like and what you're curious about. You might just hear it in a future episode.